You know, there are not many things I can say uh, that I could adopt from Paul's words, uh, but I think I could adapt this statement. I am what I am by the grace of God. And the grace that was given to me was not given in vain because I labored more than they all. I have literally worked myself almost to the end of my strength. But I still have enough for today. Thank you. So, um, I want you to do something interesting. I want you to turn to the book of Micah. I'm going to pray after this, of course, so don't get panicky. But Micah chapter 5 has something I think very relevant to the time in which we're living. I don't know if you're aware of it, 300,000 people protested in Washington, D.C. last night on behalf of Hamas. This morning there are clips being shown from around the world, hundreds of thousands of people in every country you can imagine in Sweden, in Britain, in Germany, and other places, Australia, hundreds of thousands of people are demonstrating on behalf of Hamas. And I say with the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, that as perplexing as it is, these things must come to pass. What is going on right now, we are living in historic times. We're living in prophetic times. And what is going on right now is preparation for what is to come. We know that the tribulation is near and we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to take that scepter and he is going to shatter the nations. And it's also, I think, preparing people's mindset for the reception of the Antichrist. Micah calls the Antichrist the Assyrian. There are something like 20 uh, references to Antichrist in the Old Testament. It, I may be wrong on the number. Uh, Zane Hodges actually did a book uh, on this uh, many years ago uh, where the Assyrian refers to the Antichrist. So if you'll read with me in Micah 5, now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Reference, of course, to the nation of Israel. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he will stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall abide, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace when the Assyrian comes into our land. When he treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men, they shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria, the land of Nimrod at its entrances. Thus he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. The minds of the people of the world are being prepared to receive the Antichrist. The Antichrist, I believe, will come out of Islam, though he will not 
truly be of Islam in the sense that he, he um, I think it's Daniel that tells us he will not worship the God of his fathers. Um, so he's going to come out of Islam, uh, but he's going to have a different religion because his religion is himself. He is going to proclaim himself to be God and you worship no one but him. And of course, the world is going to welcome him with open arms because the false prophet who will come out of Israel, uh, they will claim is the returned Lord Jesus Christ who is now giving recognition to the one we know as Antichrist. We are drawing very, very near to those days. I'd love to go into more detail on it, but we need to be praying as never before because while these are prophetic times, they're also perilous times. And we need to be every day vigilant and alert and ready for anything because probably anything will happen. We have a whole lot to cover in James chapter 4, and I'm going to have to get to that. If you'll open your Bible there, uh, I will offer up a word of prayer asking God's blessing on our time together, and then we'll begin in James chapter 4. Gracious Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for the grace that you shower on us. That we should live in these times is truly a gift of grace. We are seeing the words of the prophets become a reality before us. We recognize, Father, that we are not immune to the uh, drafts of, uh, we'll call it hot air, to the waves and the currents of our time. We also will be affected. Uh, we also may suffer. Father, we recognize that all suffering that you allow into our lives, as James has taught us, is designed to refine and purify, to separate from us those things that are offensive in your sight, to purify us that we might be acceptable, that we might offer acceptable service, and that we might fulfill the purpose for which you have placed us in this time, in this point in history. So, Father, now we pray that God the Holy Spirit will open our eyes and our ears, give us receptive hearts as the Spirit of God presents the word to us. And uh, we pray that we'll go out of here stronger, wiser, and more useful in your plan. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've mentioned before, and you'll see a lot of references to it, there's so much in James. Uh, you have 30 pages of notes. If I were to teach those 30 pages of notes, it would take me a couple of weeks at least uh, to go into all the background and all the detail and everything else. I'll give you a little illustration and example of that this morning in James chapter 4. Um, but there's so much to cover here that I simply cannot cover it all. I've tried to hit the high points. Uh, sometimes I just have to set the notes aside because if I get caught up in them, uh, we're going to be moving along at the pace of a tortoise instead of galloping along at the pace of a racehorse, which we have to do in order to cover the whole book. But the interconnections in the book of James are fascinating. Every topic that James deals with in chapter two, three, four, and five was introduced in chapter one. I don't know if he planned it this way or if it was simply the working of the Holy Spirit that led him to cover it's almost like he laid out an outline and then he says now about what I said here in chapter one 
and then he develops chapter two. In chapter three, he goes back and he grabs one of those topics and develops it in chapter three. And I would love to be able to spend more time just showing those connections, uh, but we really don't have time. He's talking in James chapter four about being delivered. Remember the book of James is about salvation, but it's about phase two salvation, the salvation of the saints, hence the title of our conference. And we need to be delivered from all the things that James presents to us. And the only deliverance that we can find from those things, of course, is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in conjunction with the Word of God. So he's going to deal here in chapter 4 with arrogant presumption. We oftentimes in our arrogance presume to know things or presume to do things or accomplish things that really are not a part of the plan of God and actually become a hindrance uh, and a distraction in the plan of God. And so we're going to see this as we jump in to James chapter four. Our key verse, verse six, he gives more grace. That's really the thrust. He gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. As I mentioned earlier in our conference, at any given moment of time, we are either in carnality or spirituality. Spirituality is not based on what you don't do. Too many churches try to build the idea of spirituality on what we don't do. We don't smoke and we don't chew and we don't date the girls that do and all of those kind of things, right? Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And if you don't do all of those things, you're spiritual. The biblical concept of spirituality is not what you don't do or what you do. It is who's in control. Who's in the saddle of your life? Who's controlling that bit? that guides you where you need to go. Who is the pilot of the ship, going back to his earlier illustrations? Is the Spirit of God in control? If he's not, it doesn't matter if you're attending church every day, reading your Bible every day, doing good deeds every day, you are carnal, and all of those things are going to be burned up at the Bema Seat of Christ. So he gives more grace, naturally makes us think, or at least makes me think, of Romans chapter five, where we have the five much mores of the Apostle Paul. If we had time, I would go back to Romans chapter five, probably the most crucial chapter in the book of Romans. Whenever I read someone's uh, commentary and I want to know if it's a commentary that I want to buy, I turn to two or three different passages, but one of them that I always go to is Romans chapter five, because if they don't have Romans five right, I probably am not interested in reading much that they want to uh, tell me. Uh, but we're not going to go back to Romans chapter 5. We have two other passages we have to get to, so let's get into it. James chapter 4, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your lust? I prefer the word lust for pleasure that war in your members. What's the point? The point is when you have strife and division in a marriage, it's because there's strife and division in the soul. When you have strife and division in a family, it's because you have a family of people out of fellowship. When you have strife and division in a local church, it's because you've got a whole lot of carnal believers who are trying to do God's will or do good works, but they're all carnal, and therefore the inner conflict breaks out to the outside. You lust, he says in verse 2, and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. Remember the 
warned them earlier about murder just from the standpoint of hostile attitudes to fellow believers. Jesus, of course, equated hatred of a brother with murder. So you lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot attain. The reason that jealousy and envy are so deadly is because people feed on the passion and they feed on the lust to have what someone else doesn't have until they can justify doing anything to get their hands on what they want. He says you do not have because you do not ask. So lack of prayer, prayer is going to become a major topic in chapter 5, but you haven't asked God for it and therefore you don't have it. On the other hand, verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Uh, the idea here, of course, is just self-gratification. It's uh, the, the problem of lust and a desire to have, to obtain, to enjoy, whatever it may be, is never satisfied. Never satisfied. You cannot satisfy the sin nature. It doesn't matter if it's alcohol, if it's drugs, if it's money, if it's position, if it's power. All you have to do is look at our politicians and you will realize that there is never enough to satisfy. Did you know that with us being, what are we now, 36 trillion in debt? Do you know how many one trillion is? One trillion seconds ago. Think about this. One trillion seconds ago was how long ago? 30,000 years, 1 trillion seconds, 30,000 years. We are 36, 37 trillion dollars in debt as a nation. We're bankrupt. What do our fearless leaders do? They just voted themselves a $35,000 a year raise. They work for us, but they vote their own reasons. They get a raise about every two or three years, you know. $150,000 to $200,000 a year is not enough to live on for these people. So they kick in another $35,000, which you're going to pay for as you're having trouble putting gas in your tank and food on your table. You can't satisfy lust. It has no bottom. It has no end. Verse 4, how do you like this? The pastor calls his congregation a bunch of adulterers and adulteresses. He's already called them murderers. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility against God? To be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. Again, let me remind you, he is not talking to false professing believers. He's not talking to those who have not yet come to faith in Christ. He's talking to fellow believers. We just sang the song about uh, the Lion of Judah and the and the thunder and, and lightning and everything else. The book of James starts out like a far off thunderstorm. And the thunder keeps building and building and building until it gets to this point. And then of course, chapter five, and it's like it's all just lightning and thunder all around you. Why does he call them adulterers and adulteresses? reason he uses this term is because in the Old Testament, idolatry was equated with spiritual adultery. And they are guilty of idolatry. Anytime we allow anything to come between us and the Lord to be more important to us than the Lord, and it can be good things, doing good can become idolatry. When it's done with the wrong motive, when it's done for the wrong reason. 
So he calls them adulteresses. And you have in your notes, just look at your notes at 4.4. You adulterers and adulteresses throughout the Old Testament, idolatry is portrayed as spiritual adultery. Look at all those references. As a matter of fact, look up and down that page. Look at all those references. You realize I had to look all of those up. I had to find them so that I could put them on the page so that you could very easily say, oh, I know a passage that relates to this, and you can go to it, and the reason I spend so much time, and it adds hours and hours and hours to the workload of making the notes, is because I want you to understand the Bible interprets itself. If you look at these verses and you compare those relevant passages, you will find that Scripture is identifying for you what the passage is saying and what it's all about. And it will, of course, expand the idea. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think, do you presume? The idea here is uh, arrogant presumption. That's why I used the phrase earlier. Do you actually presume in your arrogance, and I'm paraphrasing obviously, that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. You say, well, I can't find any passage in the prophets that says that. It's because it doesn't exist. What James is doing is taking the concept from many, many, many passages, starting in one that I didn't even put there. See all your references, Deuteronomy, Exodus, Ezekiel, Nahum, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians. All of these passages talk about the Spirit of God yearning jealously over God's people, but you might want to add Genesis 6-5. My spirit will not always strive with man. Just throw that one in there. Genesis 6, 5. Do you actually presume that the scripture is speaking in vain? The idea in vain to no purpose, without content, without any real idea of what the spirit of God is doing? The spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives greater grace. Greater grace than what? Greater grace than salvation. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life. That's eternal life. And that you may have it abundantly. That is the spiritual life. That is the life of spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, spiritual productivity that the Spirit of God came, resulting in blessing to others, resulting in blessing to yourself. Someone asked me yesterday if I was uh, a little tired from the weekend, and I said, I'm absolutely whipped. Usually when I get done with a conference, I feel absolutely shattered. I have poured every ounce of energy I have into it. But I have to tell you this, the greatest blessing that I have comes from the many mission trips, the long miles and the long uh, hours and hours and hours of travel and standing in front of people until my brain is like mush and I can hardly think because when I walk out, I don't want to have anything left on the table. On the table of my soul, it's empty. The food has been given. The children have been fed. I've given all I can give. So, greater grace. That grace comes from the Lord to each and every one of us to accomplish his plan and his purpose, but we must be reminded of something. While God keeps pouring out grace, if you make yourself his enemy, he's going to resist you. 
God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You say, well, if God is giving more and more and more grace, why am I not getting it? Because of arrogant presumption. You're living your life arrogantly. And if you're living your life in arrogant presumption, guess what you are? You are a murderer. You are an adulterer in the spiritual realm. And God is against you. He is going to resist you. When it says that God resists the proud, it uses the word antitasso. It's a military term that means to set your forces in array against the enemy. I don't know about you, but I don't want that from God. I don't want God being my enemy. He resists the proud. It's a gnomic present. The gnomic present speaks of that which is always true. It is always true that God arrays his forces against the proud. He is always going to set his forces against the arrogant. And therefore, the solution is to be humble. He's going to teach us how to be humble. But before he does, we need to understand how do Christians get in the condition that these people, James is talking to, people who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, people who have the Spirit of God dwelling within them, people that he himself has been teaching the Word to, how do they get in this condition? I'm glad you asked. Turn back to the book of Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul gives us the path that leads to this condition. Ephesians chapter 4. There are seven steps down. If I had a big whiteboard, here's what I would draw. You can picture it in your mind. Here's the cross. Here's the path that leads to the crown. Probably most of you have seen this diagram. This is the path that we're supposed to take. The path that we're about to look at is the path of the carnal, we would say, reversionistic believer. And many there are who take that path. I would suggest the majority of Christians have taken that path. Here it is. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord. Now, he's taking a solemn uh, oath here in a sense, or a solemn vow, that what I am saying right now is the absolute truth, and you need to pay attention. I am testifying this in the Lord. The Lord is my witness that this is absolutely true. That you, Ephesian believers, you, should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. That's step one. Step one in the downward path is the path of carnality. When you start functioning just like unbelievers function, you're functioning on the sin nature, you're functioning under the same motivations as them, you have taken your first step into the downward spiral that is going to lead to misery, the loss of blessing, the loss of eternal reward, the destruction of relationships, the destruction of families, the destruction of local churches. This is step one. Don't walk like the rest of the Gentiles walk. Step two, in the futility of their mind. The word futility, matayotes, you've heard the term before, refers to a vacuum. You know, nature hates a vacuum. A vacuum will always be, be filled. So when your soul has a vacuum through lack of study of the Word of God or lack of hearing the Word of God under the filling of the Holy Spirit, 
You can sit in Bible class for years and have a vacuum in your soul. Because if you sit there in carnality, it's going to go in one ear and it's going to go right out the other. Part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit to believers is the recall ministry of the Holy Spirit where you're in a position of need. You're not sure what to do. You ask God for guidance, wisdom, direction, discernment, whatever it may be. The Holy Spirit walks over, pulls that file out, opens it up in your soul, and you go, aha, I have the answer. Spirit can't do that if there's a vacuum in your soul. The futility of their mind Either you're not listening to the word or you're listening to the word, but you're out of fellowship. Step number three, having their understanding darkened. How does this happen? Once there's a vacuum in the soul, the lights begin to go out. When we leave this place today, we're going to switch the lights off. The lights are going to go out. It's going to begin to get dim. Whenever we're functioning in carnality, there is a darkening process in the soul. I have seen it so many times through the years of my ministry where people who once could quote to you vast portions of Scripture can't even remember John 3.16. Christians, they've lost it all. It's gone. Why? Because they went their way in whatever fickle pursuit that they were after and the lights went out and the darkness began to fill that vacuum of the word of God. This is why the renewing of the mind that Paul speaks of in Romans 12, 1 and 2 is so important. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. Alienation from God begins to take place. Again, why? Because we have taken the position toward God as an enemy. Friendship with the world is hostility against God. We begin to build alienation and God doesn't move James is going to make this clear to us. God doesn't move. We're the ones that have moved. We move further and further and further away. We're like the lady that, I've told you the story before, the couple driving down the country road and they uh, pass a young couple sitting in a car and their heads are like right next together. You used to be able to do this. You know, the old cars had bench seats where your date could just slide right over against you and you got one arm around her and one arm on the wheel. And as they went by, old Mabel turned to Herman and said, Herman, why don't we sit like that anymore? And he looked over at her and said, I'm not the one to move, Mabel. He's still behind the wheel. She's the one on the opposite side. And that's what we do with God. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. It's a lack of truth, the lack of scriptural knowledge that has brought about this alienation. Alienated from the life of God is number four because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the blindness of their heart. The darkening process comes to a complete point where it's, it's like they're walking in the dark. Verse 19, who being past feeling, here the problem is the conscience begins to be hardened. Paul talks about those whose conscience has been seared as with a hot iron. The hardening of the heart. Because of the blindness of their heart, being past feeling, that's step number six, have given themselves over to lewdness, and here's the end process to work all uncleanness with greediness. The word greediness here is pleonexia, and it means insatiability. 
inability to satisfy. Nothing is good enough. You see people like this all the time. The church isn't good enough. The pastor isn't good enough. His hair wasn't combed quite right. His voice broke in the middle of a message. It's just, may I say, bitch, bitch, bitch. What's going on, tape? And we see people like this in our churches all the time. Well, this isn't quite right. Someone does a good job of, you know, it's like all the people that work to help put things together and some, the tablecloth's crooked. Well, where were you when we were setting up? Fault finding is an evidence of carnality. Criticism, critical attitude is an evidence of carnality. It's not enough, it's not enough, it's not enough. Well, as those of you who are in my church many years back know, I have a solution for that. Go find another church. It's very simple. Take your bad attitude and go elsewhere. Right? This is the path too many believers take. Too many people in our churches. Too many people have become critics. They can find fault, but they can offer nothing of benefit. And why is that? Because instead of taking the path down that he's just described, we should be taking the path up. Turn with me to 2 Peter. There are three paths possible for the believer. One is the downward path. That's the wrong path. The other is the upward path here in 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given to us, listen closely, all things that pertain to life and godliness. He has given us all things. Nothing's left out. No lack at all. That pertain to life and godliness. What is godliness? Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 3.16 that godliness is Christ-likeness. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Godliness is Christ-likeness. And he's given us everything to become Christ-like. Through the knowledge, this is epinosis. That means the word of God. Heard, received, embraced, and applied through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue hold on to that word virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature it's what the bible calls conformity to the person of christ to become a partaker of his glory he says, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. The idea of corruption is the idea of spiritual corrosion, which we just saw again in Ephesians chapter 4. The corruption, the corrosion that is in the world through lust. But also, for this very reason, you say, well, God's given us everything. Why don't we have it? Why don't we enjoy it? Why don't we see it? For this very reason, giving all diligence. The word giving literally should be translated bringing in. God has given you everything. There's only one thing you have to add. There's one thing. Diligence. Scudazzo, spiritual motivation. 
I can't motivate you. Even God can't motivate you if you won't be motivated. You have to add. You have to bring in. You have to supply one thing to God's plan, and it'll carry you through spiritual motivation. Jesus called it hunger. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. He spoke of it as those who have ears to hear. Let him who has ears hear. He's talking to a group of people just like I am, and everybody's got two ears, but that's not what he meant. What he meant was, do you have the spiritual ears to hear? Are you spiritually hungry? Are you humble? Do you see yourself desperately in need of the word of God? Do you see yourself as a beggar on the verge of starvation, hungering and thirsting for the word of God? That's the attitude we need to have. If we bring in diligence, we're going to be able to add something to our faith. We already have faith. We've trusted Christ as our Savior. But what do we need to add? Well, now we have the seven steps upward, and these are the seven steps of spiritual growth. Here they are. Giving all diligence, add to your faith, number one, virtue. I told you to hang on to that word because it's the same word that's used up in verse three, and it's the word that refers to supernatural power. We start with supernatural power. Why is this the first word that is used? In ancient Greece, they used it of a hero on the battlefield who displayed almost supernatural power in combat or of an athlete in running or wrestling or boxing who, who displayed just almost supernatural power. You know, among the Greeks, and I forget the guy's name, there was a Greek wrestler who had won... Uh, you have to understand, they're wrestling and boxing. They mixed them together. It was kind of like MMA. By the way, turn off MMA. Just turn them off. They've now partnered with Bud Light. Bud Light is now the official beer of MMA. I'll never watch another MMA match. I was there when they started MMA with Horian Gracie and Hoist Gracie. I watched Hoist Gracie defeat Shamrock in Tulsa. I believe it was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I've gone to several of those back in, the, back in the old days. But the whole point is we have to have supernatural power. And where does that supernatural power come from? Here's the question I ask you. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit right now? You say, well, I don't know. I'm not sure. You should know. I know I'm filled with the Spirit. How long does it take to get out of being filled with the Spirit? About the time you walk out the door and someone almost runs over you, it'll take about that long. Just that quick. Or someone comes up to you and says, that tablecloth's not right. That gets me out of fellowship real quick. I have to say, Lord, wash me and cleanse me because I just fell into the you-know-what pile. I don't know about you, but I have to get a good scrubbing at least 20 or 30 times a day. Add the filling of the Holy Spirit and the other steps will come. Step number one, virtue. Step number two, knowledge. Now we're learning the word gnosis here, not epinosis as up in verse three. It's the intake of the word of God. We're hearing the word of God. We're learning it. We're learning new passages, new principles, new promises from the Word of God. And it starts making sense to us because the Holy Spirit's now our interpreter. And he's able to take that information and 
you have those aha moments during Bible class when you go, wow, I see. You know, like the blind man. First you start seeing vaguely, dimly, and then suddenly, I was once blind and now I see. And why does it all suddenly start making sense? God the Holy Spirit is doing his job of taking the mystery of his word and communicating it to you in ways that you understand and giving you a, a, a motivation and a desire to apply it in the ways he wants you to apply it, not someone else. None of us are supposed to be a copy of anything but Jesus Christ. And you will copy him in ways that no one else could do. That's the uniqueness of our individuality. Add to your knowledge self-control. All right, we know we're filled with the Spirit. We're taking in the Word of God. What's the very first thing God wants us to do? Apply it to yourself. Self-control. Self-control means inner rule or authority. All right, if I'm going to have that kind of self-control, what does it mean? That means under the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit, God's Word is going to take me by the neck and apply those truths to my life. Whatever my tendencies, whatever my failures and flaws, he's going to begin whittling on those, and he's going to begin working on those, and he's going to begin moderating on those, and it's not going to happen all at once. There's no such thing as instant spiritual maturity. It takes time, it takes years. But if you can look back and say, Six months ago, I wasn't where I am today. A year ago, I wasn't where I am today. I've learned some things. How wonderful and how marvelous to be able to see those changes in your life. To your self-control, add perseverance. Once we start learning to apply the word to our life, we need to keep on keeping on. Persevere. Stick with it. What do I persevere in? Number one, I persevere in bringing in diligence, spiritual motivation. To my diligence, I add the filling of the Holy Spirit. To the filling of the Holy Spirit, I start taking in the Word of God. I start applying self-discipline, and then I start taking in the Word of God, and I start pressing on and pressing on because, as Paul said, even as an apostle, even from a Roman prison, even having spread the gospel throughout the known world at that time, not as if I had already attained either, neither that I have become perfect, but this one thing I do, I keep forgetting what's behind, I keep looking for what's ahead, I keep pressing on. That's spiritual motivation. I don't want to be in six months where I am today. I want to keep pressing on, and that's one of the reasons that I put unbelievable demands on myself because if I, I could, look, I could take it easy. I don't have to give you 30 pages of notes. I could stand up here from memory and teach you the book of James. I've taught it before many, many times. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be lazy. I don't want to one day stand in front of the Lord Jesus Christ and have him show me a picture of your souls with your problems and pressures and difficulties and concerns and heartaches and burdens and everything else and say, see all of this? You couldn't see that when you were teaching him. That's what was sitting in front of you and that's what I intended to meet and supply and you were slack. I don't want that to happen. So I try to work hard for your sakes. I hope you'll work hard for my sake. Perseverance. Perseverance, godliness. Step five. 
What is step five in the level of spiritual growth? It is the beginning of conformity to the character of Jesus Christ. You know how you'll know that you're beginning to be conformed to the character of Jesus Christ? Other people will notice it. That's when it's wonderful. When, when someone can say to you, you know, you really blessed me. It may be through a prayer, it may be through a kind word, it may be nothing more than that time that you wanted to criticize and instead of criticizing, you decided to compliment. You really blessed me. And not everyone's going to tell you, but if you have one person somewhere along the line say, you were an encouragement to me, you were a blessing to me. That, that one time is enough for you to know if you affected that person that way, you're having that effect on everyone you come into contact with. None of us are an island. Nothing that we do is for ourselves. We're not isolated in any way. We are all a part of a spiritual body. We all have a part to play in that body. The stronger we are, the stronger the body is. The more unity we have, the more united the function of the body. You know, it, it used to be, uh, just again showing you my flaws, but the fact that a little growth's taken place, I used to be willing to fight over every single point of doctrine. Every point. You, you think different than me, I'm ready to argue with you. And I've come to realize how absolutely stupid that is. Absolutely stupid. Two weeks from now, I'll be in Idaho teaching, building a spree of core in the royal family of God. And we're going to start with the royal honor code. And the royal honor code is given in Ephesians chapter 4. And it talks about that one word, that one faith, that one baptism. All of those things that hold the body, that make the body cohesive, that make the body strong. When we disrupt that, we are committing a sin against God. Now, there are things worth being divided about. But it's not how many points you have in your particular doctrine. Oh, I have five points. Well, I have 10 points. Well, I have. There are 30 things that God does for those who believe in Christ at the moment of salvation. Well, I have 36. Oh, well, I've come up with 40. And I used to hear that kind of stuff among pastors all the time. Well, I have 50 points. Right? I remember standing in a certain church, and most of you will know where it was, just by this reference, and a lady said, I listened to three tapes today. And the other lady looked at her and said, only three? <laughs> Seriously. And these people think they are spiritual super giants. And yet I can go to India and Africa and South America and Papua New Guinea, and I can find people who don't know a fraction of the things and, and don't have the opportunity to know a fraction of what believers in America are blessed with and they have stronger faith and are more spiritually mature on the little slivers of truth that they have. They live by faith. They trust God. And they know very well that it's not about how much knowledge I have, it's about who I believe in and how much I trust Him. Godliness, of course, then leads us to brotherly kindness or brotherly love. <clears throat> you know why there's so little love in our churches? Because people won't grow up. They won't grow up. 
many people go to church not to hear the word, but to see how they can impress other people. To see how much more they know than other people. Uh, to see what they can criticize. Whatever. I know I'm not telling you anything. If you're in a local church, you know this. You know that these kind of things happen all the time. And this is what James is rebuking his listeners for because they won't grow up. Brotherly love cannot be fake. We all know what we mean, and most of us at least would know what we mean by the doctrinal movement. We all know that the idea and attitude in the doctrinal movement is you get as much doctrine as quick as you can, and the more doctrine you get, the more super spiritual you are. And there's one thing missing, the love of Christ. The love of Christ is gone. There are churches that you could go to and you could walk into them for a year and no one would ever walk up and ask you who you are, introduce themselves to you, or show any interest in you at all. When I said at the beginning of this conference how much I had learned from Chris and his wife, Sean, that's one of the things I've learned. They care about people. Chris and I don't agree on every point of doctrine. There are areas where we disagree strongly. We talk about it, and we can talk without fighting. And we understand where each other is coming from. But I'll tell you one thing that I see in them. I see endless supplies of the love of Christ. And there are a lot of people in that church that are hurting. There are a lot of people who have heavy, heavy burdens. And there are people who come because for the first time in their life, I'm talking, you know, most of the church, it's a gray, graying church. Nan and I are the young ones in the church sometimes. There are a lot of hurts. There are people who have come there and said, I dropped out of church 20 years ago because I went to a church for a year and no one ever spoke to me. Here I have found a family. Here I have found people who care. I have found people that love me. I have found people that will help me if I have needs because the love of Christ is there. Brotherly love leads to love, and that's, of course, the unconditional love of God for every member of the human race, and we all need to do what I often have to do, and that is I often have to remind myself, Christ died for that person. People that you see on television, people that you see in politics, that just outrage me, and I come back again and again. Father, open that person's eyes, bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ, help someone present the gospel to them instead of cursing them, I'm trying to bless them. The love of Christ. So there are your seven steps up. Now let's go to James. So you say, if we're not growing and we've taken the downward path that we see in Ephesians chapter four, how do we recover? Well, I'm glad you asked. James has an answer here in James four, beginning in verse seven. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This, by the way, he's saying to people who have been living in carnality. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Some people really ought to be crying who are laughing. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. 
you see the seven steps? Number one, submit to God. That's where it all begins. God resists the proud, verse 6 says, and that is antitasso, to set your forces in array against. The word submit in verse 7 is hupotasso, and it's the picture of the soldier who is under the complete, complete command of his captain or his leading officer. Complete, unconditional, unquestioning submission. If we could get Christians to be half as diligent as a young Marine that just came out of boot camp, we would have phenomenal impact throughout the world. Because I'll tell you one thing they don't do. They don't, when the sergeant says, double time it over, they go, I don't feel like running. He'll get a boot up behind and probably a few waxes. Well, they don't anymore because we have to coddle them. We have to teach them to resist their white rage and understand those who got born in the wrong body, and on and on and on. Our military has been completely destroyed. But you understand what I'm saying. Unconditional surrender. The commander says this, every single word that we have read in James comes not from James and not from me, it comes from the Lord himself, and we are to be an unconditional surrender. That's the word submit. Submit is number... Uh, one, number two is resist. In the same way that God resists the proud, we need to resist the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We do not understand the power that we have. The devil trembles lest believers learn the power available to them. That's what he's terrified of. The least believer, the most frail believer, the skimpiest believer, whatever you want to call it, who finally wakes up, who finally has that dawning moment when the light comes on and says, all power in heaven and earth has been given to my Savior who has invested that power in his word and he's given to me. That's the power that we have. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. I'm going to have to hurry. I've got three minutes to finish this chapter. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That's number three. Draw near to God. You want a perfect picture of what it means to draw near to God after being in the position of being his enemy? Go read the parable of the prodigal son. Most popular parable in the world. Prodigal son. There he is in the pig pen. There he is starving. There he is in tattered clothes. What does he say? The light came on and he said, I will get up and go to my father. It took some time. He had to persist. The journey home was long. He was tired. He was weak. He was beat down. But he persisted in drawing near to God. And it won't happen overnight. It's a daily process of drawing closer and closer and closer. Remember, he's not the one who moved, we are. And the further we go from him, the longer it's going to take us to get back. It doesn't happen overnight. Trust me, I've been in that pig pen, I've been in that faraway place, I have been hungry, tattered, and beaten down, and I know how long that journey is, but I'll tell you, it's worth every single step. Every step. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What, by the way, what happened in the parable of the prodigal son? What was the father doing? 
The father saw him far off. How did you see him afar off? He was looking for him every day. God the Father looks and longs for the erring believer, the sinful believer, to turn around and come home. Just come home. And the Father ran to greeting. Number four, cleanse your hands. Starts with the outside. People say, again, doctrinal movement. Well, I'll just first John 1 9 it. Father, I have sinned. I'm going to go do it again. Father, I have sinned. I'm going to go do it again. That's not confession. And you're not clean. Confession means there's a change in mental attitude that agrees with God that what he has said about what we're doing is right, that what we are doing is wrong, and therefore we are going to stop doing what we're doing. Otherwise, it's just a farce. It's just a game. So we start by changing the outward. You know, it's easier to stop doing something than it is to stop thinking about it. Whatever we do all the time, we think about it all the time. Remember Romans 8, the mindset on the flesh is death. And therefore, the cure for the inner problem starts on the outside as far as the application of the word is concerned. We have to stop doing what we're doing. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Once we have stopped doing what we're addicted to, we can start getting over the addiction on the inside. Right? Purify your hearts, you double-minded. What did he tell us in chapter 1? Ask for wisdom, but let him ask in faith. Nothing wavering, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. He is a double-minded man. The word literally is two souls. It's like you've got two souls. You're Jekyll and Hyde. You know, I'm a good guy, I'm a bad guy, I'm a good guy, I'm a bad guy. Oh, I'm around other people, i got to be a good guy. Nobody's looking, I'm a bad guy. Right? Kind of like the drunkard that hides bottles all around the place. My wife's not looking. Who, me? No, I'm sober, everything's fine, right? Jack on high. Step number six, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and enjoy the gloom. Let me ask you a question. How, what do you think was the attitude and the outward expression of the prodigal when he left home? Down the road he goes, skipping. Got money in my pocket. Got lots of friends. Going to party. What do you think his attitude was coming home? Head down, shuffling in the dust, tears running down his face. What made him happy before now makes him sad. What a mistake I made. What a horrible, horrible mistake I made. Can you look back in your life and see things that you can say that about? I certainly can. I don't want to do it too long. I won't be able to keep teaching you. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. You know what God loves more than anything else? He loves to run to the aid of those who are broken that have turned back to him. He loves to run to their aid and lift them up. Have you seen the picture? I think it's in the Denison Church. There's a picture as you enter in. No, it was in Alabama. 
I get confused. I've been so many places. Bible conference in Alabama, and in the entrance is the picture. You probably have seen the picture. Jesus is holding a guy who's just, it's, it's like his strength is just gone, and, and Jesus is holding him up. And I said in the group there, that picture, that's me. That's me. Broken. Utterly without strength. And he throws his arms around you. Listen, you won't find, well, I hope you find someone in life who is like that to you. I thank God I have a lady like that. I don't know what I'd do if I didn't have a lady who had the strength and the courage and the tenacity. And I can tell you for a fact, and don't worry, I'll bring her down after she floats in the air for a while. I'll bring her back down. I would not take special forces soldiers some of the places that she's going. You know, it's an easy thing to cross a border when you've got 10 guys at your back and you're all heavily armed. Try crossing the border when it's just you. Try crossing the border when you know that the price for crossing that border is you're going to be shot or you're going to be in prison the rest of your life. Now try doing it again and again and again. And she goes skipping along across the border. I love her more than I'll ever be able to tell her. Let's wrap this up. Verse 11. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. You know one thing that I have really been convicted of in the book of James? And I've been studying James for quite some time. This is a thing the Spirit convicts me of. It is so easy to speak ill of fellow believers. Not really in malice, not really because you hate them. It can be your best friends. It is so easy. You know, I don't know why they do that. Of course, you're talking to someone else because you want them to share your misery, right? There they go again. See, I told you, they're always doing this. It's so easy to do. And it's wrong. It's absolutely wrong. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. Why? Because... If the law is the standard and you're judging them because they broke it, you're not the fellow believer that you're supposed to be helping them up. You become the judge that's convicting them. You're a judging person. What did Jesus say? Judge not that you be not judged, for with what measure you judge, it will be judged back to you again. And what was it that James told us just earlier? He shall have judgment without mercy. Did you realize that you're making, when you judge another believer, you're making your position before the bema seat of Jesus Christ more uncomfortable? Because we're going to give an account for what we do. And therefore, and this is the great thing about it, the sin nature whispers, remember the picture, they have an angel on, or a devil on your left shoulder and an angel on the right shoulder, and the devil saying, Go ahead, complain about it. And the angel saying, don't do it, don't do it. And the next time that devil starts speaking to you and says, just speak a little bit of smack against a fellow believer. You know what you can do? You can turn that into an advantage. 
that can be a motivation for you to say something good about them. Or say nothing at all. Don't become a judge. You are not a doer of the law. What was our theme at the beginning in chapter 1 and verse 22? Don't be hearers only, be doers also. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Do you want to try to step into his place? The only true judge? I don't think so. Can you imagine when the judge comes into the courtroom? If you're sitting there in his chair... There's one lawgiver who's able to save and to destroy. By the way, save from what? Is this talking about eternal salvation? No, the whole chapter is talking about the Lord delivering you and I from all the things James is saying that we're doing wrong. And he can save us from that. If he can save us at the cross, which is the greatest work, how much easier is it for him to save us from the little faults and frailties that plague us day by day? Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make profit. You ever hear anybody say anything like that? Oh yeah. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Shortly after James wrote this, his life vanished away. Actually it was a while after, not shortly. About 62 AD, he was taken to the top of the temple, and Ananus, the son of Ananias, who was then the high priest, called the city together and said that James, who was known as James the Just, will now denounce his older half-brother. And James praised the Lord Jesus Christ and said he is the only Savior. Ananus threw him off the wall. He fell to the bottom. Some of you have been there. You know how high some of those walls are. They threw him. He was still alive. The Pharisees madly rushed on him and bashed his brains in. How long is your life? It's a vapor. Mine is going to be gone before I know it. Yours is going to be gone before you know it. Never forget in the things that you plan the brevity and the uncertainty of life. It is brief and it is uncertain. You do not know what will happen tomorrow. Verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that. You know you have to live before you can do this or that. If I'm alive, and if it's God's will, I will do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Again, arrogant presumption. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. You know what? Our study of the book of James, which ends next hour, has just put all of us under phenomenal responsibility because now we know. We can't say, I didn't know anymore. To him that knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your grace. Bless these words to our souls and to full and complete and true application in our daily lives. Help us to examine ourselves often. Help us to hold ourselves to the standard that you have set before us in the book of James to continue that upward path growing in grace and truth, drawing ever nearer 
to your goal for us in life, which is conformity to the character of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.